0: Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real life examples. Here's your host, Devin
1: Elder. Okay, today on the show, our guest is Mr. Chris Bentley. He's the president and CEO of Ballatorum Resources. They are a mineral rights uh, royalties co-investment firm with 28 million in assets and 17 team members. I'm excited to dive in and learn more about this. Uh, frankly, this is kind of a new space for me and hopefully we'll get some value for our audience as well. Chris, welcome. How are you? I'm
0: doing well. Thanks for having me, Devin.
1: Yeah. Thanks for, for jumping on. So, for we talk about a lot of multifamily investments things like that we've done some land and and single family but it's all kind of been in the real estate realm and I'm real curious to know if you were to if you were to explain somebody you know kind of the classic elevator pitch or the overview in 30 seconds of what mineral rights investing looks like how do you explain that to the to the newbie or to the layman
0: um it's it's actually very uh I'm you know unique asset class. And so to, you know, something that most people understand or at least think they understand is real estate. Well, uh, mineral rights actually are real estate. It's real property. Um, We can 1031 in and out of it. We've done a lot of 1031 uh, transactions. And uh, so I actually refer to it as oil and gas real estate. Um, And, and uh, I think that resonates well with people. They understand it. And, you know, just like collecting rent from tenants, you know, the oil companies are our tenants and they pay us a percentage of the production that uh, comes out of the ground based on the terms of our lease with them. So, uh, in short, that's, uh, that's the elevator pitch about the asset class. And then Bellatorum is pretty unique in the sense that, um, we're a truly bootstrapped uh, entrepreneurial mineral rights fund, which, um, most of our competitors have come from private equity, institutional, um, you know, money and where the the management team has been cherry picked from working at other investment firms. And they were brought on by, you know, NCAP or NGP or some of these large private equity groups. And, um, so our story is really unique and our, our culture and our background. We have a, you know, myself and most of our team members are military veterans. So we use a lot of that same ethos and, um, you know, the, the systems and processes and checklists that help make the military efficient. We've brought in some of those uh, standard operating procedures and applied them to this space. And so I think that sets us apart as well.
1: Yeah, outstanding. Well, I appreciate the overview. How did you come to this space? Obviously, you know, you mentioned you got a military background. But before we get into the nuts and bolts of uh, mineral rights investments, which I, I can't wait to dig in on, but how did you end up forming the company? And, and what was your path to, to getting that to, to kind of where, you know, where you are now?
0: Hey, um, Yeah, so I was, I thought I was going to be a lifer in the Marine Corps. Actually, I was in for about 14 and a half years. And uh, there was a downsizing and uh, back in 2012, 2013 timeframe, and basically, if you had an ingrown toenail, you were getting cut. So uh, <laughs> I had a severe shoulder injury. I was on a, had a couple surgeries and was on uh, limited duty. And so I got my marching orders to go back to the civilian world and uh, didn't know what I was going to do with my life. Had a degree in political science for my undergrad. Not much you can do with that in the civilian sector, except maybe be a journalist, which I had no interest in doing. And um, you know, so I uh, moved back to Texas, where I'm from, and and at that time, Houston was the fastest growing city in America, best economy in America. You basically, you could fog a mirror, you could find a job, is what is what they say. So, uh, so I moved to Houston, got a job for a land company, and uh, started you know dealing in um, petroleum land management and right of way acquisitions worked for them for about two years and got laid off a few days before Christmas, uh, 2015 when, when commodity prices were super low, very similar environment to what we're in now, minus, uh, you know, COVID-19 obviously. And, um, so once I got laid off, I just, I, I knew there was still opportunity in the space, um, money to be made, you know, inefficiencies. And I thought, well, why don't, you know, if I'm my own boss, I can't, I, you know, I'm not going to lay myself off or fire myself. So, we started Bellatorum and started out with just my wife and I at our kitchen table, at, you know, in 2016. And then, uh, sorry about that. Let me, um, turn off. My- off. Oh, you good. Um, so, you know, anyway, we, we just grown exponentially. We, we got our first little micro fund in 2017, $400,000, friends and family proof of concept type deal. And, um, the rest is history, quite frankly.
1: Great. Hey man, I really appreciate that overview and I love the, the bootstrap entrepreneur, entrepreneurial nature of it. That's very similar to our firm basically kind of starting with some single family houses and proof of concept, right? Okay, this works. What's the next bigger step? All right, we made that work and you know, fast forward a number of years and, and it, it, can, it can grow as long as you prove it out and, and remain successful. So, I love that aspect of it. Um, so, what does you guys are a fund model now? So, is it like an open-ended five hundred six B fund, or how, how is it actually structured? That um, I am I, I'm assuming you could take on a new investor and place them, you know, into this. But what does the fund structure look like that you guys set up?
0: Yeah, so it's a closed fund. Uh, but but the way new investors can come in is by you know, so let's say we have an existing investor that wants liquidity, and they can get you know bought out at you know, whatever we terms we can negotiate, but it is a closed fund. So we raise all our capital. It in a five Oh six B exemption, you know, reg D exempted limited partnership. Got to have, you know, you can only have 99 accredited investors or I think 2000 qualified purchasers, um, you know, and there's definitions around those, but uh, yeah, so, so it's a limited partnership and we, all the capital goes into that limited partnership and then that limited partnership takes title, to the assets we buy and very much like real estate, you guys get deeds for your properties. We get deeds. We refer to them as a mineral and royalty conveyance, but they are a property deed, Um, you know, and uh, usually, you know, special warranty deeds or or general warranty deeds. uh, They have that language in there and we take ownership of the properties and then notify the operators that are, that are operating the wells on, on those properties. We don't buy the surface. we just buy the mineral rights. And, and so uh, we notify the operators, Hey, we now own the mineral estate and start paying us the royalties that you would have been paying to the previous owner.
1: And so you've got a scenario where you could have somebody um, on a thousand acres of ranch land in Texas, hunting whitetail deer. They own the surface rights and behind the scenes, the minerals are being traded really without that surface right owner, not even being involved or even knowing. Right
0: sometimes you know most of those um we have done a deal where where we've purchased the mineral rights from the person who owns the surface and they were just deciding they didn't want to sell their land their surface land so they sold us the mineral rights you know so that's those are unique few and far between um scenarios but again keep in mind yeah the, the surface owner usually doesn't know but where it really is inconsequential to them is all the, all the things that have affected the surface have already happened in the past. So we, right. don't go, we don't go and buy speculative land that doesn't have existing wells on it already, right? So the surface owner has already been affected with, you know, the well pad or the right-of-way for the, you know, the gathering pipeline system or the, or the access roads for the trucks to come and take off the product. Um, so those things have already been negotiated and done with the surface owner, um, for the assets we buy. There are other groups out there that do buy undeveloped acreage and, and potentially buy properties that the surface owner has not been affected yet by the production of oil and gas.
1: Got it. Yep. No, that makes sense. So somebody coming in, um, do you guys have like a return projection or like a hold period projection. We kind of put our investors like, Hey, here's, we're buying this apartment. We might hold it for this long. Here's our return projections. And they kind of all look the same project to project. How do you guys treat that for the fund?
0: Yeah. You know, so because of the, you know, I mentioned the bootstrap nature of our, um, you know, of our company and the evolution of our company, our first micro fund that was a proof of concept. It was, uh, six months, so we wow. were under the, you know, we, we held the properties very short, turned them over, made a profit, returned the capital. Those same investors got their friends and family, you know, and and we we raised our first, you know, pr- what we call a proper fund, which was the first limited partnership we had. That one was a year. So we had a year and there was, um, you know, we're buying and selling properties during that year. It's not just buy and hold for a year. There was a the velocity of capital component to it. So what we would do is, You know, we did like the first one, like in four months, we aggregated a bunch of smaller interests, sold them, distributed the profits, recycled the capital and did it again, you know, maybe a couple more times within that year. That was a small fund, you know, just several million dollars. And then um, our current fund is an 18 month lockup. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And we launched that in January of 2019. So we're coming up on the end there's been a little velocity component to this one, but also a larger aggregation. We had a much larger fund on this one. And so, you know, God willing, we uh, will exit by our 18 month lockup end of our 18 month lockup, which is coming up uh, middle of this, you know, this summer, like into June, early July timeframe. And uh, you know, and then, and then we'll launch our next one. Right. And that one we've, you know, with our learning process and everything, we're thinking a five to seven year hold period is a, is a, is a better um, structure for this asset class, gives us a little bit more patient capital, allows us to recycle the capital multiple, uh, you know, several times without being under the gun to divest due to an arbitrary, arbitrary timeline. That sure. may not make sense for market conditions as as yep. we're experiencing right now, right? So, yep. Um, but all in all, I mean, uh, it, it, does that answer your question on the on the, the yeah? It sure the it
1: sure does. That's real interesting. I mean, a six month you know period is I mean that's like a blink of an eye, right? Even eighteen months for a for an investment is a pretty quick turnaround so i think that makes sense you guys are looking for a little longer horizon and i mean in multifamily world we're usually looking at kind of a default horizon of you know five years with understanding that could be it could be 30 months uh if we get to four and a half years and we hit you know some sort of uh, b- bump in the economy like we're in right now you know it we may need to hold it for another year or something like that but uh, investors seem to be pretty on board with a five-year hold, you know, and it's good to, it's good to have cap, you know, set the expectation that this is a multi-year deal and it's a place for investable capital. This is not a place to, to gamble with cash you need or anything. This is just a vehicle, an alternative to say the stock market that that's for, you know, it's for investable capital for the long term, And that, that seems to resonate with people. So.
0: Absolutely. And, And absolutely. It's an alternative investment um it provides free cash flow at least i'm not saying all mineral rights funds do but we're only buying cash flowing assets proven assets and uh so there's a free cash flow component to it as well as a capital appreciation component you know so um you've got the the opportunity for capital gains as well as uh ordinary income and free cash flow so i think that's one unique thing about this asset class that that is attractive you know the hard thing is that it is oil and gas and a lot of people just are scared of it. Right. It is, it's always been volatile. It's a, it's a, it's a roller coaster. And what I tell, um, you know, investors is like, if you don't like riding roller coasters, don't go to six flags, you know, it's uh, it's the same <laughs> with oil and gas. It's it, you know, but if you're, if you have the patient capital and you can stay in, you know, usually you'll come out on top and do all right. And, and we've got a pretty good track record of, of delivering returns and, um, you know, knock on wood, we haven't, uh, haven't lost money yet. I know we're young, but uh, we've done, our investors have been happy with us thus far. And I think we'll continue that success.
1: Yeah, that's great. So it's, there's so many parallels here with the real estate play. I mean, it effectively is a real estate play. Is there a depreciation component or does is that only apply to, you know, improvements on, a, on land?
0: No. So in, in oil and gas, they'll call it depletion so uh yes there is that component it's it's in essence the same thing um we have not uh historically we have not taken advantage of that because we've had such short hold periods right um but on a on a longer fund with more patient capital that's actually a thing we're modeling out right now is how we can take that depletion on certain assets and in which will increase the um you know the net the, the net return to
1: the investor. Makes sense. So that sounds like a, a, a lot like depreciation in, in, in some regards as it pertains to the investor. That's interesting. Uh, interesting Absolutely. approach. So what is your, what is your team look like today? I mean, you guys kind of built this from the, from the ground up, have grown organically. What, you know, what's the structure of the team look like? Who are, who are some of the, I guess, not specific people, but you know, the roles that a company like yours has, uh, you know, as it stands today?
0: No, it's a great question. I'm glad you asked it too, because when you introduced us, you said we were uh, 17 and we've actually just recently grown to 21. It was Excellent. 17 a few months ago. So we hired a, uh, we have a, uh, a geologist now, just a very, very skilled and and experienced geologist, uh, you know, petroleum geologist, his name's Jonas. We have a reservoir engineer now for technical evaluations on wells and, you know, and, um, and then for the geology, obviously on the rock, like the you know what's the likelihood of certain um, geologic zones being developed. We have we're primarily um, land managers or landmen, as they're referred to. That's not a uh, gender term. I'm not sure if you're familiar <laughs> with uh, a, sure. what, what a landman is, but it's uh, it's short for land manager or petroleum land manager, and it's a uh, it's a unique skill set, but mainly for figuring out uh, mineral interest ownership and um so that's we're heavy on that side we have uh six uh seasoned landmen and two land analysts um you know we've got the we've got a control an oil and gas accountant that formerly worked for noble energy um so we've got we've got some really good in-house skill sets to help with uh you know, all the components of managing oil and gas interest. And, um, I think we're, you know, we're set up very well, especially when compared to our peers, you know, we're, we've got a large, very capable team and, uh, it, it, allows us to to really take advantage and be aggressive and, and, you know, deploy capital smartly and efficiently.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. I appreciate the overview. Obviously a lot of expertise there within, um, with a specific industry and it's not like you guys are all uh, admins or, you know, bookkeepers. There's, there's definitely some serious talent stack on board there for the, for the team to go out and do this stuff. Are you guys, um, where are you primarily buying and selling? Is it Texas based? Is it nationwide?
0: Texas only uh, Texas mineral ownership property laws are, are very favorable to the mineral owner comparatively speaking to other states um, no state income tax, obviously, uh, limited partnership is a pass through entity. So no, you know, no franchise taxes that, you know, um, for us. And so we like, there's plenty of opportunities in Texas, arguably the best, you know, some of the best onshore basins in the world are in Texas between the Permian and the Eagleford for, uh, oil. And then you've got Barnett and Haynesville for gas. And so, uh, we're happy just staying in Texas and and I think for the foreseeable future we'll we'll continue to stay just uh, acquiring assets in Texas
1: that's great um, so I want to ask a little bit about your kind of investor experience you know that's something we talk about here internally from somebody that's that's brand new to the firm all the way through to kind of making their first investment and maybe their first year with investment. What does that process look like at a high level for you with, with, um, I guess basically onboarding a new investor and what, you know, what, what can they expect?
0: Well, you know, we've all been, uh, just individual accredited investors. Uh, we have one or two family offices actually, uh, that are, but, but they've come in as, you know, it wasn't like, it's not like we don't consider it institutional capital. Uh, they're invested right along with, with our other uh, ultra high net worth individuals and accredited investors. And, um, so the onboarding process, I mean, for us, it was, it was not very formal. It was, Hey, here's our offering documents and our pitch deck and, you know, come, come kick the tires, meet the team in in our office if you want to. Mm
1: -hmm. And,
0: um, I'm not a, a professional capital raiser, you know. I, I, I have uh, a lot of investment bankers and broker dealers and RIAs have have reached out to us, but you know the the hoops you have to jump through, at least in my experience, to get in those, and and then the fees you have to pay. Uh, our current investor pool just doesn't fit that model, right? And our the the hoops we have to the regulatory hurdles we have to jump through to go get in that that uh, realm have been just not something I've had the time to take on or, or the interest, quite, quite frankly, the, the negative side of doing things the way we've done is, is that the ability to raise large amounts of capital is, 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 uh, restricted, you know? So we, we have capacity to manage with our current team and the deal flow we're generating. We have capacity for $250 million, you know, Easily like we can put that capital work and recycle it several times over the course of five years and so our next offering we think we want to be like in the minimum 100 million range to max 250 right and um, but raising that amount of capital from 99 individuals is is difficult to say the least sure. So then you get the institutional capital or the the broker dealer world in there. And now you've got to have three years of audited financials and, um, you know, all these things and people willing to pay the broker dealer fee and, you know, and so our existing investors would probably not like to invest in the structure that those, those vehicles suggest or provide. Right. And so it's almost like a catch 22, um, We're navigating that right now. We're we're trying to prepare for our next offering and trying to figure out a structure that works for everybody, so that uh, we don't leave any of our existing investors out of it, and uh, also don't prevent ourselves from raising more capital.
1: Yeah, that's it is a it is a challenge. Um, You know, if you're getting fifty checks written that has its own set of challenges, but usually um, you can kind of control the structure and the terms. And also you can give those 50 investors the direct LLP ownership, direct LP ownership, direct LLC ownership. And there's like, there's like no middleman for them. You got a manager and an investor and you split the profits and like, that's it. I mean, there's, there's no, there's nothing in there. So that's advantageous for, for a passive investor. Um, you know, we, we've been raising capital for a long time. The idea of somebody writing one $10 million or $20 million check is nice, but um, not if they can't deliver or if they change terms on you at the last second or regulatory hurdles like you mentioned. I mean, it just comes with its own set of challenges. So it's a balancing act. But for those passive investors listening, I think there's an advantage to, you know, a smaller size firm where you're getting, you're getting direct ownership in the, in the investment vehicle.
0: No, absolutely. And another thing to bring up is you you mentioned the handcuffs and that and I was kind of that the handcuffs that tend to come along with the larger institutional checks Um, and that those things, you know, when you talk about private equity or institutional money, they usually want to control a lot, you know, and be more not a passive investor. You've got investment committee. And I'll say one of our competitive advantages has been the managerial latitude that we enjoy in the ability to just act quickly on an opportunity and and maybe you can appreciate that, you know, we're, we're getting deals that are off market. We move quickly. We can make offers and close within 24 to 48 hours. Whereas the private equity back groups, they can't make any decision. At least in my experience, I don't want to speak. Like I know every mineral rights group out there and how their structure is. But if, if there's an opportunity to buy an asset, what, what you should be put at doing is putting your faith in the management team to make the right decision and let them do their job. That's how we're structured. Now I'm finding that if we go a more conventional route, uh, we're not going to have that managerial latitude, which will slow us down. We'll have to get approval for all of our investments. Um, but that, you know, one, one thing I, I think is if you go a more conventional route and you have all those control mechanisms in place, it may give you the comfort you, you desire as an investor, but you also get more conventional returns, right? So there if you go. want outsized returns, you got to do things unconventionally and, and kind of outside of the norm. But if you, if you want to go the conventional route, then it's just going to be the status quo. And so we're trying to, you know, we don't want to go down that path just for the sake of having a larger fund. Um, we feel that our our results thus far have had a lot to do with how our structure is, you know, our incentives and the way that, again, the managerial latitude we enjoy under our current structure.
1: Yeah, that's, a, that's very well put. And that's a, that's a great way to phrase it for people that um, when you're out making deals, this speed and, and reputation and ability to close, I mean, that stuff is the, it's the difference between getting a deal and not getting a deal. And so- Absolutely. You know, if you've got the ability and the track record and the relationships to get stuff done and close deals, um, you're going to see more of those, and that's just that's just more deal flow for your for your investors and for everybody involved. So that's a that's a good thing. But you start taking a few of those pieces away in terms of speed of execution or certainty of close, um, you're not getting deals. You know, right. that's just how I'm, I'm sure it's the same on in your business as it is as it is in ours.
0: 100 percent
1: Yep. yeah so that's that's a that's a great point and a, a good um you know a good kind of framework for people to think about working with a smaller firm that that has that managerial attitude that you spoke about versus um hey i mean you can take it all the way to getting an e-trade app and boom i'm an investor in something and there's your there's your standard returns and all the kind of negatives that go along with it or you can explore an alternative investment where it's certainly much more about like you said, the operator and the management team and, you know, relationship-based, making sure that, you know, you are getting on board to trust that management team to make the decisions on the investor's behalf and, um, and execute quickly. So what, what would you say um, your investor base, um, are they coming to this as kind of another piece of the pie of a, of a diversification portfolio? Are you seeing people kind of test it out and then grow with you over time? What does that look like for you?
0: So all of the above, right? I mean, we've had a group of investors from day one who who dip their toe in to test the waters, and and then have substantially increased their commitment uh, each iteration. And and then we have um, very traditional investors who just say, "Hey, I, you know, it sounds like it'll work to me. Don't want to hear anymore. I'm willing to put this amount of capital because I put it in a certain bucket." you know, this risk bucket of my investments and, and that's where it goes. And, and so, you know, there, there's all, all different views on, on, you know, and philosophies on how to invest capital. And we've, we've got all, I mean, we have 99 limited partners. We're at our max. And so, um, they, they run the gamut and it also, you know, we've got some very, um, uh, I mean, seasoned, just uh, generational wealth in the real estate business. Who've never mm-hmm. invested in mineral rights before. Who understand that it's real estate, but don't have traditionally been fearful of oil and gas. And so, we've got those. We have we have some oil and gas, you know, experts, people who've made their wealth in the energy industry, who are very comfortable with it and like the fact that our worst case scenario is that our money's in the ground and it'll come out eventually. And, uh, you know, and then we've got the doctors, dentists, and, and accountants and lawyers who may, you know, just have done very well in their particular, uh, career field and have investable capital and just, you know, they, they have a lot of questions because when they see, you know, Hey, OPEC just met and it's going to crush the U S shale industry. When they see those headlines in the industry on the, in the media, they get uh, nervous and, you know, and so we have to field those, those uh, questions and phone calls, but that's, you know, it's just part of the business. Again, there's, there's the pros and cons of having institutional capital versus private capital. And, um, you know, I, I, who knows what the best answer is, but I'm sure it's a mix of both. Right.
1: Yeah. Usually, usually somewhere in the middle. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, well Chris I've really enjoyed this overview I've, I've learned a lot of, out of this you know and I'm hoping that our audience can say the same thing in terms of being exposed to some new ideas. I love learning about new investment vehicles. This sounds like a pretty close cousin to real estate, so I was glad to learn theres there's certainly a lot of similarities there uh, for somebody listening that that hasn't connected with you guys, what's a good avenue for them to to get into your universe
0: you know they can they can uh, call us at uh 832-559-8217 or they can email me directly at chris at com. i'm happy to field any any questions or you know just talk about the asset class in general um you mind if i ask you a question Devin?
1: sure fire away we'll Are see you, if i we'll see can, if i have you an tell answer me for where you. the
0: ranch is that uh what, what county the ranch is in that you're looking at
1: We've got an offer. Gosh, hopefully this comes out late, you know, in a few weeks or now where it doesn't matter, but we've got an offer uh, in Atascosa and uh, another okay. offer in uh, Wilson County.
0: Okay. I know, I know the area. Well, it's part of our Eagleford, uh, South yeah. Texas area of interest. We've, we've purchased mineral rights in both counties and um, you know, some good operators are active down in that area. So uh, hopefully you can pick up the mineral rights as part of the deal
1: yeah people hold them pretty close to the vest, so it's been uh you know as you know people are reluctant to to let that go, but we're trying for it for sure
0: so you know you can get an undivided they can maintain some of them and give you guys some as well, right I mean they don't have yep. to give them all up
1: Yeah, yeah we' we're', we're um, that's kind of the thing that I'm going through learning about executive rights and surface rights and mineral rights and kind of going through that and and uh it's you know it's a different kind of seller a lot of the times than than real estate for sure um so that's been a fun process to go through and learn and learn on and um you know that's that's one of the reasons I wanted to connect with you and kind of learn learn more about this too and then learn about hey there's this investment vehicle too where you can you know we don't have to just try to buy them as we're buying land we can um we, you can actually invest in them through a firm like yours so that's a, that's a great avenue to be exposed to absolutely well so. I really
0: appreciate you having me on Devin it's been a pleasure and let's stay in touch
1: Awesome. Chris, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it.
0: All right. Take care. Cheers. All right. Thank you for listening to the DJE podcast. For more information, please go to djetexas.com.